welcome to the Wesley Memorial Podcast. Join us this Sunday at 1225 Chestnut Drive in High Point. Visit us on the web at wesleymemorial.org. Now here is this week's message. It's better than another. Isn't it offensive to say that one truth is higher or greater than another truth? And that's one reason why we're doing this series of a re- called A Reason for God. To, today's theme is that the, the message of Christ is rather exclusive, not in a negative way, but that his words, by their very nature, are, are exclusive. But that within that exclusivity of his message, of being the truth, there is a radical inclusivity within the exclusivity of Jesus' claims. And it does come down to what is truth. And in every field of study, uh, we're looking for truth, right? If you're in science, you're trying to find truth. If you're in medicine, you're looking for the ultimate truth. Of course, if you're in religion, you're looking for the ultimate truth. When we're children, we learn basic lessons of fire is hot, right? And ice is cold, that Duke and Carolina fans will never probably get along with each other or whatever you want to team you want to throw in. But we learn these things early. Even Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Even that scripture is ingrained in stone over the media center doorway of this very campus. But what is truth? One of the greatest intellects in the history of the world, Sir Isaac Newton, he literally discovered gravity. (laughs) He said this about truth. He said, I do not know what I may be appeared, what I may appear to the world, but to myself I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself and finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell, while the great ocean of truth lay all dis- undiscovered before me. That we're all on a quest for truth. Everyone asks, what's the meaning of life? Where will I go when I die? What is truth? Wise people ask these questions, and these questions are welcome here. Foolish people ignore these questions. Um, Probably by the same time that movie came out, there were these billboards all around the country, these God billboards. I got a picture of one. Remember these? Let's meet at my house Sunday before the game, right? A little bit of a guilt trip from God, right, on where you're driving your car, right? Um, These are everywhere. They were very popular. And I remember I was driving in Asheville at the time where I lived with a friend who was kind of a lapsed Christian. He was kind of coming back to his faith in our mid-20s. And I I said, that's pretty cool, you know? Maybe, what do you think about those? I think people will read those and maybe they'll, you know, think about God. And he was very honest. He was still like a cynical guy. And he said, he's like... I don't think people really care. It's like, I, and he's probably right. He was like, I don't think people really, really even notice. And he's probably right. People maybe don't care. And they have that attitude, though, at their own peril. Because the Bible makes it clear that the truth is knowable. Job, in the Old Testament, he said, I know my Redeemer lives. Paul wrote, I know in whom I have believed. John wrote, I, you can know the truth and the truth will set you free. But some people hear the truth and they don't like it. I had a friend many years ago that got a bad diagnosis from the doctor and they got mad at the doctor, right? You didn't hear what you wanted to hear. And so you kind of shoot the messenger. But sometimes you need to know the diagnosis before you can know the cure. 
And the truth helps us get closer to that. Jesus makes an astounding claim in John 14. He, it's called the I am statements in the New Testament. Every time you see Jesus make an I am statement in the Greek, it's emphasized. In English, it should be in italics is the way the Greek was written. He's saying I am. He's stressing these words. Every time you see him say I am anything, that's what he's doing. And he says I am the truth. He's saying I am the embodiment of truth. C.S. Lewis had a classic argument in, in the book Mere Christianity where he said, Jesus, with these truth claims, you can believe one of three things. Either he was a liar and he was just making it all up, or he's a lunatic, as C.S. Lewis would say. He's someone that thinks he's a poached egg or the Queen of England. He's completely out of his mind. Or he is who he claimed to be, Lord. Lunatic, liar, or Lord. Suppose he is the embodiment of all truth. And suppose you drive by the billboard and ignore it. And we do that at our own peril. As Jesus said, what is it if you gain the whole world, all the pleasure, all the money, all the, the stuff, but you forfeit your soul? You've made a fateful error. But what is it about Jesus' statements that are so exclusive, so unique among all of the world, world's religions? He stands out. John 14. Now, when he's saying these words, he's speaking to the disciples because he's telling them, I'm get, basically, I'm getting ready to leave. So he says to the disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. That's nice to hear. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Now here comes Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas is great. We forget Thomas asked this question. We need doubting Thomases in the church. And here's Thomas saying, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then later on in the book of Matthew, Jesus makes another statement that it seems quite exclusive. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction. And there are many who take it. I think Jesus had to have a heavy heart when he said that statement. I don't think he got any pleasure out of that. For the gate is narrow, and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Usually Christianity is the one religion that takes the most knocks for being exclusivistic. But in reality, that's not true. All truth claims, by their very nature, exclude something. You don't mean to hurt the feelings of five, but two plus two is four, right? I mean, there's, it's not personal, but truth claims, by their very nature, exclude something. And some people would say it's offensive to say that one religion is closer to the truth than another. And while I do believe that, I do believe that the gospel is the answer for the problems of humanity and that Jesus is the truth. 
We have to be careful, though, because that does not give Christians license to denigrate with someone else's belief or who they are. And, and it should be the contrary. We should be even more of a servant and more loving to people who don't believe what we believe. But truth, by its nature, is exclusive. And everybody makes ex- exclusive truth claims, religious or otherwise. And in the midst of Jesus' exclusivity, though, is this radical inclusivity of love and acceptance and grace that's open to every race and gender and nation. And really the church should be the perfect place for imperfect people. You know, before you go to the dentist, do you brush your teeth? Is anybody here a dentist? Do you even care? I mean, you look at mouths all day. It's just one other mouth. But before you go to the dentist, right, you brush your teeth. You got to get ready for the exam, right? Or before you go to the beach, you want to get a tan. I do not care about that. I'm the whitest dude on the beach. But, you know, you feel that temptation. You know? Or before you join a gym, I better get in shape before I go to the gym. Or before I get a haircut, I'm going to wash my hair, which I don't always do. They probably wish I did. But in the same way, people look at a church and they think, well, I better get it cleaned up before I walk in those doors. And that's just, that's, don't. Because if, if church is the place for perfect people, none of us would be here. It's the perfect place for imperfect people. And people can look at this beautiful place and this beautiful sanctuary and think, ah, I'm not good enough for that. You know what? None of us are good enough to come in. It's by grace that we're welcome in this place at all. It's the perfect place for imperfect people. And all of us are, are welcomed with this radical love of Jesus. But why would an exclusive claims of Jesus have a fruit of such an open love to the world? It's because we follow a man who literally died forgiving his enemies and loving his persecutors. And if he is our Lord and we want to emulate him, then we have to suffer along with people, bear their burdens, go along with people, show patience with people different than us because that's how he first loved us. Now the culture's response to, the, as, they, as he says in this book, the divisiveness of religion. And if you want to pick up a copy, we bought more. They're on the tables over here. Just leave 10 bucks in the basket, but take one with you. Um, we'd love for you to be reading on your own. What I'm referring to today is from the first chapter. But the culture's response to the exclusivity of religion or the problem of religion is three things, he says. The first one is to outlaw religion. Just get rid of it. Now, if you read world history, atheistic, usually communistic regimes have had a hard time of that. Pol Pot, Mao, Stalin, Hitler. For everyone who says that religions cause a lot of pain in the world, and that might be true in many cases, atheism has, it, has the, the track record. Millions, unfortunately, have died at the hands of men trying to outlaw specifically Christianity. And it hasn't worked. Even the current Chinese policy, the church in China is exploding. Tens of millions of Chinese meet in homes and apartments. And the state church is kind of suffering, but the underground church is thriving and growing. Another way that the culture tries to outlaw religion is uh, the separation of church and state. 
And there are lobbyist groups and caucus groups that try and make this happen. Now, I'm not a constitutional scholar by any means, but if you read the first amendment of the Constitution, they're speaking from a place of King George using the church for political means. And when they say that Congress shall make, shall make no endorsement of religion, they're saying that we need to keep, it's, it's for the benefit of the church so that the state doesn't get involved with the affairs of the church and use it for its own purposes. So he's saying separation of church and state is for the actual good of the church, not for the state. Now, another reason we uh, want to respond to religion is to just generally condemn it. And one way, this is a variety of ways that you hear a condemnation of religion, but one is to say, well, all religion kind of teaches the same thing, right? It's sort of multiple paths to one mountaintop, and they're all going to the same place. This is a very popular belief. It's sort of like the analogy of blindfolded people uh, discovering an elephant. And someone has the trunk, and they say, oh, I found a snake. And they have the leg of the elephant, and they say, oh, I found a tree trunk. And, you know, it's like their truth. They found it. You know, but that breaks down, that analogy, because somebody's got to see it's an elephant. Somebody knows what it actually is. See, many people today believe that religions are actually superficially different, but fundamentally the same. And that's actually opposite. They are fundamentally different, and at best, superficially the same. Allah is distant from his people in the Quran. The Judeo-Christian God is close to his people. He bears the sins of his people. Hinduism is full of millions of gods. Buddhism is essentially atheistic. So to say they're all the same, it shows a little bit of an ignorance about the basics of world religion. Now on the flip side, a, a popular postmodern thought is that all religions are equally false, which is a very cynical sort of apathy, sort of saying, well, they're all just a bunch of liars, they're all out for our money or something, so they're all equally false. If this is sort of like apathy in action, if that was actually a thing, if you could really do that. This, this typifies postmodernism, apathy in action. It's sort of a militant shoulder shrug, like, eh. It sort of reminds me of my first car. You all, we always loved our first car, right? I remember my first car was a 1982 Volvo, and it was built like a tank. Remember those old Volvos? The doors were like this thick, and uh, it had a four-cylinder engine. You could see the ground around the engine when you looked down on it. And when, you, when I would start the car, the engine seemed to say to me, really? Are we really doing this now? You know, okay, I'll go along with it. It was like it was like if Eeyore was your car, you know, like okay. And that's what it feels like with say that people say that all religion is just equally wrong or false. It's sort of it's saying that truth is basically unknowable. So why should you even care? That beliefs about right or wrong, no one can determine that. As Keller says in the book, if you, if you insist that no one can determine what beliefs are right or wrong, then why should I listen to what you're saying either? Because you're admitting that your opinion is and also isn't right or wrong, so why should we listen to you? I mean, it's difficult to find the truth, and I get that. I'm sympathetic to it, especially in my own life and my own story. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try and do some heavy lifting. 
and seeking and asking and knocking to arrive at the truth. And the third way that Keller says in this book to response to religion is just to privatize religion, to take it out of the public sphere altogether. But what you're really asking people to do is to leave at home the part of themselves they consider to be the most vital, just to leave that behind. It's sort of like, have you ever heard the saying, as long as there's final exams, there will always be prayer in school? <laughs> you ever heard that? <laughs> right? There will always be prayer in school. As long as there's people, there will always be religion in the public sphere. Because you have souls. And those people will always be out in public. So it's not really going to work. But when it comes to the, quote, problem of Jesus or his exclusive truth claims and his radical inclusive love, though, we have to understand that the dilemma, the greatest problem is not Jesus. And I don't think it's religion. It's not even somebody else. The greatest war is the war inside. It's the war inside. The greatest problem is not somebody else. As C.S. Lewis said, you cannot make people good by law. You cannot just keep adding laws to the books. And now laws are important, but you can't expect it to always be fixing everything all the time. No. The real war is the war inside. In that we are born into a world with the image of God on us damaged by sin. See, Christianity is the only religion that teaches that you are made in the image of God. And that through sin, that image has been damaged. The gospel or the good news is that Christianity doesn't just show us the ailment or the problem. It speaks the truth to it. But it also shows us the remedy. And what is the remedy for our damaged image of God? It's the cross. It's Jesus on the cross. His blood shed for you. It's, it's the forgiveness of God. That the most fundamental issue that people have is a lack of forgiveness. Even Mother Teresa said that loneliness is the number one problem on the human soul. That we need to be forgiven. And people say, oh, well, just forgive yourself. But see, you, I can't do that. Only God can forgive sin ultimately. It's only by trusting in faith that he can heal the image of God of our souls and make us new again. Because maybe it's time for our world to stop asking if Jesus died on the cross and really asking why. Why did he die on the cross? It's because of love. It's because of des desire to forgive us. When Jesus hangs on the cross and he famously says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He is answering the need of the most fundamental issue that human beings have to be forgiven. That truth can be known. And that truth can be known by you today. You can know that your Redeemer lives. And that when you put your trust in him, that you can live again as well. So long ago, Pilate looked into the face of the man who said he was the truth. And he asked him, what is truth? And today, that question still echoes throughout history. What is truth? And Jesus is very clear. He's saying, I am 
the truth, and the way, and the life. And many people today would say, I would come to Christ, but it's too much to give up. But would we really have that same attitude with other areas of our life? People sacrifice to get into the college they want. They sacrifice to raise the amount of, to make the amount of money they want. We go on diets, usually, well, for better or worse, to give up food, to get to their goal. Athletes give things up to get in shape. So God asks us to do what? Maybe give up some things that we know are in our life that are wrong? Is that too much? That he gave up his, his life for us on the cross to forgive us. And maybe some of us need to lay something down at his feet this morning. I'll never forget when I was 20 years old and I gave my life to Christ. And I was just never the same after that. I was aimless. I was restless. I, I, couldn't, I didn't know the truth of my life. And around a campfire at a camp, I felt God prompt me and say, now is your time, Clark. Give your life to me. And I did. And the result of my life does not speak to a lie or stuff that is all made up in the Bible. It speaks to a reality that Jesus' words are true and that when we give our lives to him, we are never the same. That the, his light shines on our darkness and shows us the way to go. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, come to Christ tomorrow. It says that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to give our lives to God. For the first time, or for the many, many, many times, day after day, recommitting our lives to Him in the way and the truth and the life. Will you pray with me? God in heaven, we thank you that we can put our whole hope and trust in you in a, in a world that seems to be so full of lies. It can be difficult to know which way to go. But we thank you, Lord, that you are the way. And that we can put our whole hope and trust in you and that you do stand apart throughout history. That there's no one like you. Thank you, God, that today is the day that you're with us. Today is the day that we have. So we offer you our worship and our praise as we rise to sing our final song. Amen. Let us stand together.